Well, it's a place where you can't even get to. In most most cases, it's restricted and controlled, and you got to have permission from the military and stuff like that. And it so that was one reason I wanted to go through the first part of it there because it, I, it's not a place where it's easy to get in to see, and then it connects on to some of the. Some of the most interesting parts of the trail, really. From there up to Box Canyon, it's just one new interesting part of the Mormon Battalion Trail after another. The battalion didn't know what lay ahead of them when they left what is now modern-day Plaster City, California. They would have to survive 90 miles of the most desolate desert imaginable. Even with the descriptions given here in this episode of those who hiked it, it truly is impossible to imagine, especially the stench of the water. Today, we have with us Terry Worth and Peter Gilbert, who hiked some of the most unique areas of the Mormon Battalion Trail through California. Terry has spent about 15 years correlating the battalion locations and putting them into mapping software and Kevin says, we first made contact with you, Terry, at Fort Leavenworth in early 2006, just as he was starting to make plans to hike the trail. When we met at Fort Leavenworth, it turned out that uh, as I started talking about hiking the trail, Terry and I learned that he was using a, a road mapping program very similar to the software I used in my business uh, uh, back here in Michigan. And he was kind enough to share the work that he had done so far. And, and this was before that we were before we started using Google Earth. So, but anyway, from my perspective, so Terry, I, I consider you kind of the father of battalion mapping uh, electronically, anyway. And so, I just really appreciate the uh, work that you'd been doing. It, it, it served as a good jumping-off point for me. Well, you certainly took a hold and did a lot of work and got got a lot further along than I I was dreaming of. Well, that's the advantage of new software like Google Earth. The other person that we have with us, you have all met before previously, Peter Gilbert from California. Carrie's in San Diego also. Peter hiked with us in Council Bluffs and Mexico, parts of New Mexico, and then also joined us in Arizona through to um, California. So Peter is one of the people, as we had mentioned, who's really saved the experience for a lot of people that came and joined us on the hike because of his experience with reenacting and he just always knew exactly what needed to be done and was always there when we needed him. So, Peter, we're glad to have you back tonight, too. Thank you. The stretch from Yuma, Arizona, which is where the confluence of the Gila River joins with the Colorado River, on over to Carrizo Creek, uh, that's the 90-mile desert with almost no water that the battalion had to endure. And uh, so... It, it's kind of a rough spot. Uh, the trail dips down into Mexico, a couple different locations that we weren't able to go to. Um, but uh, we wind up at Carrizo Creek. That's the first water. Then we head on over to Viacito and then to uh, um, Box Canyon and the area and the areas and things in that area. So, so that's that's the area that we're going to talk about tonight. First of all. Um, I'm just going to share my experience about this area of the trail, and then I'm going to let you gentlemen hop in, and we'll take the listeners 
sequentially through the days that you hiked together and the specific places that you hiked and why those are so significant and why they were some of the most challenging places for the battalion. My memories of this place are very special, pretty much probably because of the terrain, but also because of the people that we met there and the experiences that we had. I got to hike part of this um, route, but um, you gentlemen hiked the majority of it and had some really remote experiences. I got to gather you and find you at the end when you were done. Terry and Peter. Terry, why don't you start telling us a little bit about your experience when you first met us and I'm sorry, but before you do that, I have to tell you that I was very angry with Kevin when you came to hike with us because you had asked if we would bring you back to your car when we were done. And you were going to hike with us, I think, for four days. And Kevin said, no, there is no way we can do that. <laughs> and I was like, why not? You know, we've taken everybody else back to their cars and shuttled cars. And I had no idea what experience was ahead of us. And Kevin had a vision and understood what kind of distances and availability we were going to have to get back to get cars and how much it was going to take in terms of effort to get you guys through that stretch. And so I kind of stood back and thought, okay, this is a Colonel Cook experience when he told the battalion, no, these men are not going to make it. You're going to Pueblo. And that was Kevin's um, wisdom and foresight to say, no, Terry, we cannot take your car with us and shuttle it. We're going to take everything we have just to get us and the vehicles we have down the trail. So that was my initial um, yeah. experience with you. I don't know if you remember that or not. I think that's why I had to catch a bus or something over there. We picked you up in El Centro. Yeah. So why did you, Terry, decide that you wanted to hike this part of the trail? Well, it's a place where you can't even get to. In most, most cases, it's restricted and controlled and you got to have permission from the military and stuff like that and it so that was one reason I wanted to go through the first part of it there because it, I, it's not a place where it's easy to get in to see and then it connects on to some of the some of the most interesting parts of the trail really from there up to Box Canyon it's just one new interesting part of the Mormon Battalion Trail after another. So let me ask you this, did it meet your expectations? Was it, how did it compare to what you thought it would be like to what it actually was like? Well, the desert was just as dry as I thought it would be, more so probably. The thing that though caught my mind most was when we got to the place where there is a, where the river starts. And it just looked like it was chopped up, like, Every time the river really flows, it creates a mudslide, and that mudslide must have jammed it up and started the river flowing in another direction. It was one of the most interesting, and everything was just earth. There were no plants growing on anything, because water, when it comes, just comes, and then it's dry forever. Yeah, that, that section across... And for the listeners, if you look at a map of California down near west of Yuma, you're going to see a very small town called Plaster City and uh, El Centro. And, and we're going west of that area. So this is this is the last two or three days they're going to be spending in the in the uh, Imperial Desert. 
And, and like Terry, I, I have been some pretty barren places, but oh my gosh, I never conceived that they would be completely barren of anything growing. I was, I was thinking of the Badlands, you know, of, of, of different places, the Badlands, where you got mud hills and, and sort of trails and, and ancient rivers and everything else. And that, I just call it the Badlands. Yeah. And Peter, you were with us anyway. So it wasn't like you specifically came and chose to hike that specific um, area. But was that a wish that you had had when you came back to hike with us was to get to go through that area? Not specifically, because I didn't know anything about it, but I was sure appreciated that we got the opportunity to, to travel through there and, and the permission. I remember talking about you, you getting, finally getting permission, you know, which was kind of doubtful from the state parks to even go through there was kind of amazing. And I worked for the state of California and understand the red tape that has to be gone through and everything else to get permission to go places there they don't want you to go. But um, yeah, that was something that was really kind of a, place I really wanted to see was Carrizo Creek where it dives into the, the desert and never comes up again and, uh, and see that area. Well, I'm going to back up just a little bit because as soon as we picked up Terry, we loaded into the car and decided to have a reconnaissance trip to see what the area was like, where you could cache some water because you were actually going to spend the night out on the trail and you had to get water first thing in the morning. All you would have was your canteens. And so we headed down into Carrizo Creek and Kevin wrote a neat thing about that area. And so Kevin, will you read it? Okay, so from Yuma, we took Interstate West, Interstate 8 West, uh, to where we picked up California Highway S2. And that's also known as the Old Imperial Highway. And it also has Sweeney Pass Road markers on it. And then you kind of take that to the northwest, and it takes you up onto a set of hills. And when you get to the crest, you're looking down into this canyon. And that's, that's Carrizo Canyon. It actually has two or three canyons stacked up one after the other. But you can see into Carrizo Canyon, into the creek bottoms, where you can see it's kind of green or at least dark because there's plants there. And that's where the Carrizo seep is with the water. But you're about 750 feet. I think I measured it about 750 feet higher than Carrizo Creek. So it's, it, you know, it's almost like you're up in an airplane kind of looking down into it. And you see all these just canyon after canyon. And it is so desolate except for that little spot with, with the vegetation down at Carrizo Creek. So, I mean, that's literally, you can see almost all of what you're going to hike for two days. Does anybody have any memories about when we did get to Carrizo Creek and the smell? I remember the, uh, when you first got to the, the pond before it disappeared, is it looked like somebody had snowed there for a long time because it was just white on every single little twig, branch, piece of grass, and anything else that was out there from the alkali. Terry, do you remember the smell? Am I the only one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I don't remember any smells. Of course, I'm not the one that smells a lot of things. So I don't have a good sniffer, but that water was so nasty smelling. I couldn't believe that <laughs> anybody would want to drink it. You'd have to be pretty desperate. Well, we'd been, we'd been through a part of that canyon that you didn't get to go through, and it was on and on and on with nasty water and everything else for a while there. 
in Carrizo Creek. It was not much of a creek. Looks like somebody had been down driving their off-road vehicles all over in the area down there. But there was water until we got down to where the water just disappears underground. And you probably came up just to about that that point, and that's where you put your put the water down for us. Yeah, and to describe it, off to the side, Carrizo, I, I think, is cane in Spanish. And so you have all these canes, uh, grassy kind of stuff, also kind of shrubbery, really nasty, packed in there. You, you can't actually get to the pond area, but what you can get to is, is the area where the water, as you said, kind of runs downhill and then sinks into the sand. And so the area that we actually saw the water is maybe a quarter to a half mile, but the water was maybe a half inch deep and, and six to eight inches wide, maybe a foot wide in some spots. You'd almost have to dig a hole to, to get the water to, to accumulate there. It look, yeah. looks like what you'd see in a gutter <laughs> in a street after it rains a little bit, you know, it has about that much water in it. It wasn't much at all. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, it stunk pretty bad. And if any of you want to see what it looked like, Kevin made a video of it. And it's in his interpretive map under the Carrizo Creek map pin. So you can see what it looked like. And Kevin describes it. You can see how small it really was. Yeah, so you go to the January boulder in, in Carrizo Creek. So one of the things that we were trying to do was to see how far we could get the vehicle down that canyon to pick these guys up when they were done. And my dad was with us. And um, of course, we're down in this deep canyon. We have no cell phone coverage. No one really knew that we were there. The people that were hosting us, the Jensen's that night, they didn't realize that we were going to take a little side trip and check out this canyon. So we really were not very wise when we did this. My dad was on oxygen. And we get down in this canyon, and they decide that they're going to go, oh, Kevin has a First of all, Jerry Watts, Denny's dad, did not drop the trailer with the porta potty and the ATV and everything else. So we're heavy towing this stupid trailer out in the middle of the desert in the canyons. Down a sandy creek bed, right? That's where we were. So we head down this um, riverbed, and my dad is in seventh heaven dragging us down this creek bed, and we make a turn and we get stuck. We like, there's a dead end. There's nowhere to go. And the truck sinks, the trailer sinks, and we're sitting there and there's really nowhere to back up. And so here we are stuck in this canyon and it's starting to get dark. And so I would be interested in um, Peter and Terry's comments about our being stuck, how that was for them. How about entertaining? I don't know. It was, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a puzzle to try and get everything. Luckily we had that ATV because I think it was our savior, savior right there is to, to, you know, disconnect the trailer, pull it out of the way, get the car unstuck. And, and, but that ATV was a savior, I think that time. Terry? Yeah. I just have to agree with you both. It's, it was an interesting time. I would think at that point, if I were you, I would have said, well, this has been really fun. I'll see you guys in San Diego. <laughs> I don't think you're smart enough to get me across this part of the trail. So no, <laughs> I'm, San Diego. 
I'm just glad I wasn't trying to get down and into that place with my little Ford Focus. <laughs> we told a little bit about how we got out. It was like Peter said, we had to disconnect the trailer and get. we took the ATV off the trailer and then we pulled the trailer backwards and then we couldn't, the tongue of the trailer, the foot of the trailer wanted to just sink down in the sand. And so we had to get the spare tire off and then we put our little cook cooking tire rim on top of the spare tire and made a sled and used the ATV to pull the trailer around backwards and then we could reconnect it to the suburban and get out. So you don't know, but I spent most of my life watching my dad get things unstuck. <laughs> when we would go to boat um, launches or things like that, he was always getting things stuck and getting them out. So I think my dad was pretty proud that we got out. But um, I know Kevin was beside himself. And if we'd really, if I'd had started to think about it, it was a really dangerous situation we found ourselves in that night. So that was a miracle. I think that we were able to get out. We had our pioneer moment, our battalion moment, where we had to be resourceful and figure out how to get ourselves out of a mess. I was not happy with Jerry. <laughs> You guys were really good sports though. I, I noticed your attitudes once we realized we were in a jam and you both just pitched right in and we all figured out what we needed to do. And I sat there and watched and had a good time. So, <laughs> all right. So we're gonna now say we've done our reconnaissance run. We know where we're gonna cash the water for you folks. We go back, we get all the vehicles and then we go up to Mason Valley to stay with the Jensen's. And the next morning you set out for the bombing range and we drop you back at Plaster City, I believe. Yeah, so to set this up, we had to drive a few miles north of Plaster City to intercept where we figured the trail was at. Of course, out there it's all dust and sand. Uh, there, there's no real way to say that's the trail because it's been traveled over so many times by so many different people. It's, you know, literally dust and there's no contrast. You really can't see the trail except in key locations. But uh, for those of you that are listening, that area to the west of Plaster City, to the northwest of Plaster City, is part of an old Navy bombing range from World War II. And you have to get permission to go out there. And they don't like to get permission because they don't want you to step on something and get yourself get yourself. Up. And then after that, you get into Anza Borrego State Park. Uh, the first few miles of it are old bombing range, but then there's a lot of archaeological sites out there that uh, the state parks are pretty intent on preserving, and I, I agree with that. But because of the bombing range, literally, if you take kids out there and they catch you, they'll report you to child services and take kids away from you out there. So don't do that. Okay, so Peter... Can you describe your experience about hiking across the bombing range and spending the night? Well, it was it was kind of entertaining. You know, I was I would didn't know what was what was in store for us as far as the length of the walk, and then having to walk through sand didn't help much either. Uh, it was a lot of work, um, just you know, walking through the washes and things. And it was kind of entertaining because we were walking through the bombing range, and uh, I'm not sure if appropriate or not. But anyway, I tell you that. We were on this little ridge and all here comes a helicopter and a military helicopter flying over us and landed just a little bit to the south of us. And we thought, uh oh, we're in trouble now. And uh, so we 
you know, kind of stood there and we realized and realized they had a, a red cross on it. I guess it was a military exercise of some sort because some guys got out with some some military, you know, some uh, first aid gear or something like that. And the helicopter took off. So I said, OK, maybe we're OK. And then it flew around a little bit and came back and landed, picked them up and flew off. And uh, so we hadn't even got to the state park yet, but the state park ranger saw this helicopter flying around there and thought we were in trouble. So he took his pickup and down and, and to meet us to make sure, you know, they, they knew we were supposed to be back there. And that was that was kind of entertaining. Um, and then the, the park ranger was a really good attitude and he seemed to be a really fun guy to be with as he escorted us carefully through all the bomb debris and everything else through the through the canyon. And uh, I just thought it was just a, a long, long walk that day. And man, I was beat by the time we got to our camping site. And Terry? Yeah. Um, it was a long, long walk. There wasn't much, everything just was the same repetition of stuff. Piece of junk military equipment there, a place where somebody had driven through in an SUV and left big tra trail tracks, and, and then nothing but sand and sagebrush. Not even sagebrush. It was kind of, I don't know what it was. Do you know what that plant was? <laughs> what plant? All I remember <laughs> is gypsum. Yeah. No, I no. There's I, a few little plants, but I don't know what they were. No, I don't either. Something with very deep roots. What was it like spending the night? I think night. you had a, a guest. Wait, wait, wait. Came wait, wait. Before we do that. Now realize that stretch that we were hiking through, they were doing that at nighttime. Yeah, yeah. it was because that was the only cool part of the day for them. If they were out in the daytime, they wouldn't have been able to make it. It would have just dried them completely out. So they had to walk at night. Well, I, I think the day before they had, uh, I think that's the day that uh, some of the mules and the cattle from Warner's Ranch showed up and uh, they killed one of the cattle and, and ate it. And then they broke some of the mules to help pull the uh, wagons. And uh, yeah, they, they went till late at night, like 10 or 11 o'clock. Then they stopped for a couple hours and then they picked up again. But that stretch that we hiked, uh, the bombing range area, I, I'm pretty sure most of that they did at nighttime. Well, that would have made it nice and hard. You had a visitor to your camp that night. Yes, we did. Remember? Yeah, I do. I remember we'd get out of our camp and I, I was fixing dinner and I think we had a couple cans of of beef stew or maybe it was just beef chunks or something like that, but cooking those up and I was looking out in the in the fringe fringes of where the light was and there was ice out there looking at us and uh, finally got a flashlight on it and it was a little little kit fox coming over to see what kind of food it could come up with. So I took the cans that had a little bit, of, little bit of scraps or juice in them. I put them outside, and he he went right out. He or she went right after it and and cleaned that can up really nice, and nice and clean. And I think that that little guy um, circled our camp for for hours that night, checking to make sure it wasn't anything else he could possibly get. Yeah, I remember that Kit Fox too. He was quite a cute little fellow. So was it cold that night? It was. Did you use sleeping bags or did you have wool blankets? We had sleeping bags, I think. Or did yeah. we? Yeah, I think we you know, I had a sleeping bag too, but it, it wasn't enough for that night. 
Yeah, I think we we wrapped you up in a uh, space blanket. Is it when you tearing? Yeah, along with my my bag. It must have. I don't know what made it so cold. Deserts are really cold. I remember spending the night up there in uh, west of uh, Gila Bend, and it was in probably in the twenties somewhere. I think for a couple nights there, and it was really really cold. I remember sleeping on the ground and I could feel the cold coming up through the blankets. And I was like, oh my goodness, how did they stand this? It was very cold at Kila Bend. And, and uh, every once in a while, of course, this is the winter of the Donner Party disaster. And so it was a pretty wet year in California. So uh, the battalion records, they had a number of rainstorms. Uh, I don't remember exactly which ones, which nights, but... Uh, I know after they leave Warners, they get soaked a couple times. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, that was after Warner that they really got rained on. Since that was, both of you have said it was hard. It was long. It was the same. Did that give you any impressions about the original battalion's experience? Did you have thoughts about them that day? Definitely. I was thinking I, my ancestors, uh, Moses and Edward Wade, I could imagine, you know, having almost no water and then walking from the last water, the little bit of water they gave, and walking all that way with almost nothing. Um, I'm looking at my little quart and a half canteen and thinking, oh my gosh, how'd they ever do that? Um, and then I'm sure they were appreciative of the water, how, how to, no matter how bad it stunk or tasted. And I, you know, you know, I just, knowing the hardships they went through, especially in that kind of area, it was like amazing. Yeah, I was just was happy I didn't have to taste the water there at all. No. <laughs> Yeah, the water we cached was good water. It just was so interesting to me. I was thinking as I was looking at the photos today, you guys weren't carrying muskets and pack. Well, you had a little bit of a backpack, but you weren't carrying all the gear they were carrying either. Nope. Nope. We did that the, the other night when we went to the uh, with the Boy Scouts on their, on their little night night trip. <laughs> we managed to bring, I think I... I Brought the backpack, the musket, and uh, stuff. And man, I was dead by the time that got done. That was only 10 miles. Yeah, but we, we were lucky. We could pawn off the muskets and, and some of the stuff to the kids, to the scouts. They were happy to carry it for us. Yeah, but they didn't seem to want mine. They wanted yours for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Any other thoughts that... Anybody's had about your night, your day and night hiking along the bombing range and then through to Carrizo Creek? I, I thought it was kind of neat because the you know skies were clear, lots of stars out, and uh, you know, and then just being out in the wild was kind of fun. Made me made me feel like I was there with the battalion or something, you know, because there was nobody out there and we were on our own and and it, you know, we had a lot more luxury and a lot more water than he did, but we sure I think I enjoyed it. I just remember too as we were going on through that area, coming to the places where there were springs. Just a little spot on the side of a hill was all green and had trees growing around it and everything else. Everything else was pretty much desert. I'm, I'll bet you the, ba the battalion really loved to see some of those places where you could see those trees. And it was very interesting how spotty they were. They just come up at one place and then they disappear um, go on for hours and hours and hours again and then see the same thing again. Yeah, you really get the appreciation that uh, 
where water comes up to the surface and forms a little spring and, and you get the vegetation, you know, it, and, and where everything is so desolate, you, you finally see a little bit of vegetation say, okay, I'm headed there. That's where there's water. I was always curious because it's usually a palm spring, palm associated with these springs. Cause I was noticing on our another trip, we went up there and, and there's little springs. You can see a palm tree or two. And I was wondering if those are, native or the or the Indians planted those or the Spanish or somebody else would plant palms there so we'd know where the spring is. I never did figure that out. Yeah, that, that primarily we saw those palms the next day when we were with the scouts. And, and oh, and that's the thing. The scouts never showed up that night. <laughs> well, they were supposed to show up while we were camping. Yeah, the first night that we hike up to uh, Carrizo, the scouts were supposed to join us that night, but they never showed up. They yeah. did show up the next morning. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take us to their camp, and then they, they picked up our gear and everything else and and uh, in their vehicles. And then from there, we, I think, went cross-country over to Palm Spring that following morning with the scouts, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was noticing on the, you know, on on Interstate 5 through the mountains on the desert side, you could see on the hillside, you could see a little palm or a little palm tree and then a little, little green area around it. And there's several places where I saw that looked like that. And so I was just curious if those were how those palm trees got there, whether it was planted by you know visitors or whether they just naturally grew there. Well, we, we know that Palm Spring was known as Palm Spring uh, to the Spanish. And I think that goes all the way back to De Anza. So I'm pretty sure those were native palms there. It's a good good indicator of where to find water, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, in Kevin's blog, he says, talking about Palm Springs, as I had anticipated this area more than any other, it excites my imagination. The land is the same. The route is under our feet. The journal entries are very specific and describe what they experienced or what they endured here. Their ghosts are at my elbow, in front of my eyes, and I can only shake my head in disbelief over the difficulty. Over the course of years, hundreds of less well-prepared and led people must have died following this route. The dream of easy money or gold and a fool's paradise must have been a siren song that led many to their death on this trail. It's a miracle. None of the battalion died here. Louis Dent, the paymaster's clerk, uh, wrote a letter back to his brother and he said, that uh, as he's following along with the battalion men, he sees them and they're just so gaunt. Their, their eyes are, you know, um, their cheeks are sunken, their eyes are bulging, their tongues are bloated, and they're just so emaciated from, from not having food and water. Tough. Well, I will say I'm the person who met you at the end of that stretch. I could tell you were worn out. That was one of the things as a woman on the trail, I think those women's hearts were touched by the struggles that they saw their men go through. And I know they were going through the same thing, but um, those men really had to brave through a lot of um, challenges. And I think that endeared them to those women that were traveling with them as well. So Peter and Terry, uh, we know at this point they're down to five government wagons and then three wagons that are owned by the members of the church, their family wagon. So do you think, I, I've tried to think about this, do you think the women are hiking too at this point? 
uh, are they carrying a bedroll like the men are? Or, well, of course, some of the men had their packs, but we know some of the men are, uh, have lost their packs or thrown them away and they're just using bedrolls. What do you think the condition of the women is at this point? They're probably as tired as the men were. I don't think they're they're riding in a wagon or riding anything else. They're probably walking alongside the men and, and struggling just like everybody else. Well, I think they're they're oftentimes by a wagon pretty much. They might have their bedroll in that quite a bit, but they had to be the police. Men were always trying to get some water that they could from someplace or some food. Those laundresses were the enforcers who said, no, you don't. <laughs> kind of like the Boy Scouts on some campouts. Uh, <laughs> I think the, the members of the battalion were worse than Boy Scouts, probably. They had gone without food for much longer. They had gone for so long, yes. It was hard not to try and get some food. And after after they had lost the uh, flour and, and the uh, supplies back on the Gila River on January 1st, uh, yeah, they're down to just maybe four ounces of flour. And I think they're just about out of that at this point. 